ko te Māori he mea huna ki te moana, is about the Māori, the life principle or living source, is hidden in the sea. Ina hoe fa o te motu, no mai haere mai ki te fari nei a te ahika. Ko Maraia Rakrakua ho. Ko Justin Maria ho. This is Te Ahika, giving you an insight into Te Ao Māori, the Māori world, on Radio New Zealand National. In this day and age, how do you ensure your marae is looked after? By using it, of course, as one iwi proves every day. We are conditioning our young ones from an early age to be on the marae. Um, Monday nights we have Faretu uh, Tawa. Um, so that's about our young ones not only learning about Mauraco, but they're learning Tikanga, they're learning Karakia, they're learning Waiata, they're learning Haka. I'm with some of the Fano at Nati Tukore here as we talk Whakapapa, colourful Tupuna, and Marae Gardens. Brown men, whether Māori or Pacific, seem to have every stereotype thrown at them. Violent, inarticulate, unemployed, useless fathers, and then there's the cuddly teddy bears and gentle giants. Urban Kainga, an exhibition that closed recently at the Wellington City Gallery, took all those generalisations and turned them on their head, as curator Ruben Friend explains. Is itself by um, Selinga David Setonga, and what he's done is he's taken um, well-known um, brands and kind of reformatted them so they read for, uh, I guess, um, portray Pacific Island, or specifically for him, Samoan, um, urban Samoan kind of narratives. And so um, for him, he talks about his parents coming to New Zealand in the 1960s and creating... Um, while trying to create a mini Samoa within their house in, in Auckland. And so he grew up with the language at home, um, sh- you know, strictly Samoan language as a child in their house. Um, and his parents trying to instill this idea of Fa'a Samoa, of, of pride in his culture. Despite those kind of efforts for to instill pride, you know, cultural pride in him, when he stepped out of his uh, house um, in the morning, he got labelled something else and he was perceived as something else. And so what his parents saw Samoan to be wasn't the same as what people Mm, mm. looking at him perceived Samoan to be. And so he's taken the fresh up can and changed it to freshy and underneath it says, I'm got to be good for you. (laughs) And he's he's taken a kind of humorous approach to to looking at some serious issues. But but basically it's about being labelled and despite what... Um, his parents tried to instill in him um, when he came to New Ze- when he was perceived to be someone it was different to what he perceived for himself. Before we hear from Reuben Friend, we've got Angela Wallace, who remains smoke-free, by the way. Remember, we heard from her a couple of months back. This time, Ange is reviewing the 2008 Auckland University Press publication, Tahu Hukorero, The Sayings of Taitokero. Sayings are either called Whakatauki, Whakatauaki, or Pipeha. So, what's the difference? Pipeha speak of the nature of Māori life in ancient times. Um, and captures the thinking from those times about all different types of matters, you know, as diverse as customs of battle to the heavens to, um, you know, whakatupato. There's a a lot of uh, uh, sayings based on events which are um, cautions to us about things we should or shouldn't do at particular times. 
and the pipiha gives advice, and which is for the future generations. Mm. Uh, so pipiha are linked to events, they're linked to relationships, they're linked to things that have happened um, in history. And whakatauaki can be longer versions of those, but can also be seen as more generic. So the pipiha in this book are their tribal sayings associated mm. with people of Taitokero. Angela Wallace will hear from her later. I'm Justine Murray. I'm Maria Rakraku, and you're listening to Te Ahika. Every time there are funerals at our marae, we often say flippantly that the only time we ever see each other is at a tangi. Justine, I'm sure that's a conversation many of our listeners can relate to. If there's one thing that can be guaranteed to get people back to the marae, it's tangihana. I mean, how many times in your lifetime have you done the whole driving and convoy from, say, Wellington or Auckland to get home for a tangi? But underlying that whole comment is something we face as a people, really, eh? Yep. If marae are one of the places we can freely express our maritanga, how do we make the marae current so that younger generations see it more than as a place you stop off at for a few days before you go to the urupa? Because let's face it, in this world of iPod, iPad mm. and Wii, spending time at a marae isn't exactly appealing to some of our young kids. Well... Tsukorehe Marae, located between Levin and Otaki, is doing what it can to appeal cross-generationally. And I found, when I was there last year, they're basically just doing what they've always done. And that's just getting on with it. Kia ora ko tārurua ngā pai maunga, ko te awa o haunui ana naia, te awa rere tonu ki te takutau moana, tai atu ki te awa o Waikawa, ko tērā te wahi e tohungia ko te iweo, ngā tūkorehe. Kia ora, Lindsay Poutama. Where? Poutama? Kia ora, Katerina Williams. Kia ora, Ayla Paul. I think Tukore here have been um, proactive in taking care of the iwi and what needs to be done after consultation with Komatua. The the young ones put into action what they've suggested and they always monitor what's going on. But I think there's always that drive to look after the iwi and look after the people, and not only for now but for the generations to come. So by young ones, what age group are we talking? How old are you, Lins? I'd say that that forties, uh, fifties age group. Yeah, the forties, fifties age group, and what we see is our eighties, our seventies, and our sixties are the ones that are the po. So, Katarina Williams, you're very lucky, aren't you, that you have Kaumatua that are in the eighties, because for many Māori, you know, we're not living into our seventies and or even up to our eighties, but there's Quite a population of Komatua here that are that age group? Um, we have a few of that age group. Lucky. And they're, and they're active. I mean, they're at the marae. They'll come for their line dancing. They'll come That's for line their, dancing on Fridays? Yeah, they'll come for their Komatua hui every month. So they have a Komatua hui every month. Um, and they come from everywhere. Wellington, 
whanganui, they're all over the place and they come home for those hui. One, to be with their cousins and to come back to the marae and to make sure that things are going right here at the marae. But they really are interested in what is happening with the iwi in terms of the political field that's happening, everything, um, financial, they want to know and make sure that everything is well. So has that always been the case? I mean, when yeah. you guys are younger, in your 20s and in your teens, has, has that always been a characteristic? Have Komatua always been involved in what's going on at this par? I think so, always. I mean, my, my parents were, my nanny was, um, you know, we've got the likes of Nanny Waho, all of them, um, always. And, and their children... So their children in their 60s and 70s now have always been at the marae. Fundraising, whatever it took to take care of the, the people in the marae, they've done. So it's always been warm here? Yeah, this is the 24-7 marae. <laughs> it never sleeps. Like, seriously, um, we've just come out of noho. We've just come out of uh, a big farm hui AGM meeting. And all of that happened Sunday. So we had four hui going on on one day all around the marae. Wow. Outside, inside buildings, everywhere. So that means you must have some immediate on-call ahika yes. who are able to drop things and just be here at the par 24-7. Yep. Do they just live on the outskirts here? They live around and otaki, live in, everywhere. And it's just a call. It's go, Kazi, can you come and help us cater? And they'll just say, yep. Someone come and pick me up, and then somebody will go. One one rangatahi will be here. And go, I'll go and get her auntie, or I'll go get him. Um, our queen Karoa, we have a, a walker here that's available for our komatua. So when they need to go anywhere, that's right. Okay, Mura, you're the designated driver. Go get our Fano, and off they go. But see, even that too is where one of the komato, our, our our auntie, she's a, I can drive. <laughs> I want to do that. So she's come home, and that's her job now. So she'll go and pick all the komato up. While they're in the van, they're hooing about what's going on. And they'll have their moan and their groan and everything else. I think the characteristic is, is that our komato really like one another. They'll have an argument, and yeah, yeah, stone say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they really like one another. And when you like one another, you like hanging yep. out together. Yeah. And it, and it shows, eh? Now, does it that, them. They enjoy one another's company. Now, does that, do those feelings, do they, do they filter down to the next generation? I mean... Yeah. I, like, I like her, I like her, I like her. <laughs> <laughs> those are the four people sitting around the table that we gathered at. I think that is a point of difference with us, though, eh, is yeah. that we do enjoy each other's company mm. and, yeah. and we work well together. At our, at our last AGM, my wife turned around and says, you have another life I don't even know about. And that was so true. Um, but you've got to remember that, that we are conditioning our young ones from an early age to be on the marae. Um, Monday nights, we have Faretu uh, Tawa. Um, so that's about our young ones not only learning about Modako but they're learning tikanga, they're learning karakia, they're learning waiata, 
they're learning haka. So you're putting that investment in the young people that if we looked at it further back, that the old people used to do all the time, but somehow through urbanisation and other things we've become distant from it. But you've almost, you've gone back to that. This is um, a number of things. One is strengthening our capability in our young ones and, and teaching them tikanga. But the most important thing is placing them before positive role models. So, so that's living the talk now. Yes, yes. Definitely. So does that mean? I mean, what does that? What does that actually mean? Um, for the young ones, um, it means that they they are actively participating. They're not scared of the marae. Um, they them this marae is at times um, it's something that um, that there is a tikang and there's a kawa applied to. At other times, it's a place where they come to learn, and other times it's a place they come to play in. And other times it's a place they come to meet at and enjoy each other's company at. It's everything to them. And it is, it is, it is our primary place of meeting in this area and, and in this district. And has that always been the case? This PA's been the hotbed of you know, the central point for all the other hapu to come and meet at? I'm, I'm not sure that it's all the other hapu. Because here we have uh, Matiawa, Kapu. Kapu, Kapu Manua Fiti, Te Matiawa, uh, Te Rangitafia, and Ngati Te Korehe. So <clears throat> that's, this, that's this home site here. And, and it's always been for our families to come here to the marae. Although some of us, um, in our younger years, our parents would come here and work, and we'd not be allowed to come here. We'd not be allowed to come here and have a kai because they'd go down and work, take care of the people here, then come home and cook us a kai. For some other families, they were always here at the marae. So there, there have been changes within families, within the hapu, um, over the years. So uh, I think now, with society being the way it is, we just want to make sure that our children know that they can always come to the marae doesn't matter what's going on here, this is their place. They come to the marae, if there's a helping hand to be given, give a helping hand. And, um, and they know to be comfortable anywhere on the marae, whether it be out the front or in the back or in the playing around, they know to look after the place. And then when they bring their friends here, they then teach their friends how to take care of this place. Mm. And, and that's important because a lot of our children, their friends are all different nationalities and we're finding that our babies are bringing their friends to the marae and then their friends don't want to go because they <laughs> love it here. So that kind of teaching I think is, is good and it's good for our, our parents. They come, like our, our whare tutaua children come, so our boys are all out there doing their morako, and their mums and dads are sitting in the car park having a yak and sorting out issues or f- sourcing help, they're networking. So it's all different levels of, of communication going on here and it's great, but when they see their babies... But it's normalising the use of the marae rather Absolutely. than it just being a place 
where the tupapaku comes That's to. That's right. And yep. so when people come, only come to the marae tangi, yep. so they only yep. ever end up associating it with yep. sadness. That's right. Or whenever there's like an annual hui, they end up associating it with anger mm. because it's the only time that anyone gets to have anything mm. out. And so they may misinterpret vigorous discussion for being angry, especially when it's in Māori, eh? Mm. I, I know one of um, my nieces then thought that we were all fighting. She, you know, she completely misread it, but that wasn't her fault. That's just what she saw. Now, um, Isla Paul, you recently returned back here to the pa. Now, your experience, the experiences that Katharina were describing about, you know, as a young person coming to the pa, her parents are here, grandparents, and now she's seen that filtered down to the next generation with her mokopuna and children. I mean, that was an experience that you didn't necessarily have, was it? Because you were brought up away from here. Your grandfather left here to join a circus. You want to read about it? <laughs> true story. It's a true story. <laughs> this karaoke of ours, his name was Kakawehi Peihanga. Joined the circus and, um, as far as I know, never came back to live here. Died up in Cambridge and buried up in Cambridge. But he met with Fano again up at um, Okoroere and married back into the family. So we had two strands. Arahia, Wehi Peihanga's sister, Tapita. We have two mokopuna of these that got married and they're my grandparents. Uh. So it was bringing the whanaungatanga from Okoroere to, to Korehe. So um, when I came back to Otaki, the limited knowledge I had of Otaki Kuku was my karaua had come from here. But I had been brought up by karaua and kuia up in Tapapa area, so I was familiar with marae and going back to marae. And I, I never saw as much um, noho or, or businesses or, <laughs> like, yeah, what we were saying, happening on at the marae as, as much as it happens here. Mm. And so when we, we came, my daughter and I, to be introduced to the whanau, I uh, was at the DIY and we were just That's a Marae DIY program that plays on Māori television where a Marae is selected to undergo uh, like a renovation, a makeover. Aye. So that was our introduction to the whanau when we came to, to help paint a fence. We didn't realise what we had come into and they were so beautiful to us. Um, they were saying to everybody, oh, these ones are from Tāpapa. And mm. so all of them were coming and having a look at us. And, oh, yeah, you look like so-and-so. And it was a beautiful introduction to our whānau here. And then from then on, we got to learn about a, um, a programme they were running, Arataki Manu Kōrero. So my daughter and I both joined us. And for two years, we ended up having a diploma, but not just the diploma. It wasn't the tohu at all. It was learning all about our whānau here, whānau up home, um, what we knew from home that we had bought with us, all our whakapapa that we had bought with us. We, had, we found out some of the cousins we were sitting next to and we were able to share what we had with them and them with us. And so it brought us all, strengthened us. Well, my daughter went on to have a mokopuna for me and now, if she's in town and living and baby's playing up in the car, she'll stop off here 
and she'll let Mokopuna run on the lawn. And then baby will be quiet. She just run into any of the aunties. This this Tamariki knows this marae very well, and she's just one of hundreds of Mokopuna who come and feel this is home. This is fun. God, that's so neat. And my daughter and her partner, after baby's finua, you know, when baby was born, and um, because we couldn't take it back to Okorori in a hurry. They ended up planting her whenua here, so baby is very planted here. So, Lindsay Poitama, have whenua always been buried oh. here? There are whenua planted here. Um, it isn't an, um, it isn't a a practice practice, um, but it does occur. Yes. Different whānau have uh, pitol trees, mm. and so a particular whānau, when you go to to a section of whenua, you know. The pitol tree, because some of them are still standing today. So that means none of the whenua around here has gone into private ownership? Yes, it has gone into private ownership. And, the, and those are things that are sad, but those are things that individual families make, the choices they make. Yeah? But um, our kaupapa here is, if we can hold on to our whenua, you hold the whenua. If you can work the whenua, work the whenua, um, so that you become attached to the to the land. I mean, most of our families here have all farmed their land, whether that be market gardening or just um, raising cattle, chickens. Because this, this particular area is rich when it comes to gardening, isn't it? Absolutely. Like when you, um, just in a modern-day context, when you drive between Levin and Ōtaki, you're passing gardens all along the way. Selling pears for 99 cents a kg. <laughs> uh, cuckoo Wars. Um, they so Kuku, K-U, K-U. This is our whenua here, Kuku. And they had a, um, back in the, was it the 30s? They had a big thing where they wanted to um, move people, immigrants, um, here to Kuku. And they came here to take our land. And so there was a big So battle. by the way, you're talking about the Crown? Yeah, developers and everything else. They came to take our whenua and to plant immigrants here to give them land so that they could start market gardening. Yeah. And our people, they battled. Lindsay's queer, all of it, they, were, they were major battlers in retaining our whenua here. So they stood up to, to what happened. And it's, it's documented. We just... We, crack up now when we look at, at those kinds of documents and then we remember our people here who just fought so hard to make sure that the land was safe for the next generations to come. And and, and you are kaitiaki, so look after the whenua. So what you see here pretty much is whānau looking after their whenua. Now, Moira Poitama, the whānau looking after their whenua is uh, taking that a step further here at the Marae because you've got gardens here. It was um, brought about by our olds in the kitchen wanting herbs, fresh herbs, for cooking in. And as uh, part of the conversation that went on with them was about enabling... That on the marae. Yeah. 
because I, I'm guessing prior to that it's running to the grocery store to go and get herbs. Oh, you know, all the olds have all those traditional herbs in their own gardens at home. We've been raiding their gardens <laughs> for as long as I can remember. <laughs> and we'll continue to do, but now we, you know, in, in a short space of time and in the future we'll have we'll have that on tap and be able to supply our own kitchen and the olds with with our own homegrown supply. Gosh, it must be very satisfying that you know I'm getting a real sense of how we started this interview with that you know that whole just get on with it. Like oh, I'm getting it just in talking with with you for that. Okay, we need some herbs. Plant a garden. <laughs> you know we need this. Go and do this. Yeah. Um, quite a few years ago, um, our olds actually charged us with. One, their, their big dream was to own all the land from the mountains to the sea and to reclaim that. So what area are we talking about, Lindsay? From Taradua right through to our foreshore. Okay, so what kind of distance are we talking from? About 10 kilometres by, by 4 kilometres wide. Yeah. So, Not so, that so, so, wide, it's a narrow yeah, strip. Probably about 40 square kilometres. Mm. Um, but... You can't do that without having an income, and you and it's pointless creating income if you don't have an infrastructure to take care of it. So everything in and around what what we found in the past is that a number of marae fall over because they have a number of entities within within each of those structures that are paying the same the same money for the same services. Like for instance, you you may have two farming corporations. Uh, the Marae Committee, the Kohangareo, all paying for accountants, all paying for financial services, all paying for an auditor, and all taking money for doing the same service when one service can be doing it all. So what we decided is we would create a business hub that did that for all our entities. So that creates our infrastructure to handle all our finances and do all our payments, then the other things come off that. So we have our education arm, we have our environmental arm, um, we have our nursery, all these things come off that. Kia ora, Lindsay Poutama, Moira Poutama, Ayla Paul and Katerina Williams. Nā mahi mahana ki a tata katoa, te whānau nō Ngāti Tukorehe. Now that was interesting, eh, Marae? Can we touch on a couple of things that they were talking about? Marae these days are running more like businesses. That's right, they are, and it makes sense, Justine. I mean, that way your marae is always used, so it stays warm. And as Lindsay and the others explained in that kōrero, they do a lot of things using their marae as a base, right? What an easy way of ensuring all the work you do benefits your own. And by warm marae, you don't mean literally warm, you mean there's people there yeah. keeping burning the fires back home. Another way of ensuring connection to your marae or place is what Ayla Paul said about the whenua of her mukopuna being buried there. Yeah, around the rohe. Again, this shows just how clever our old people are, right? The same word for land is the same word for placenta, and in the Māori world have equal significance. Meaning... Well, this is how it was explained to me. The placenta that houses the baby when in the womb sustains the baby, right? Yep. And so when the baby is born and the placenta becomes the afterbirth, Māori place or bury it at an appropriate place where that baby has whakapapa. Therefore, connecting what sustained that child before their birth to the place, pa, area, rohe, that will sustain that child now. Easy. 
I'm Mariah Rakraku. I'm Justine Murray, and you're with Te Ahika on Radio New Zealand National. It's inevitable, really. We end up favouring one part of our whakapapa over the other. As my poor Nazi Kahununu mother would often say, you kids, you only think you're tsuhoi. <laughs> but I guess for you, Justine, it's a little different, eh? Because your parents are from the same marae? Yep, well, mum and dad are from the same area, Tauranga Moana. Uh, mum's marae was on one side and dad's marae was over the bridge on the other side, which meant that they couldn't run away anywhere, Mariah. <laughs> so, which means you can't either. Which, exactly. <laughs> so for our next guest coming up, Angela Wallace, um, she's reviewing the book Tahuhu Kōrero, The Sayings of Taitokero. It gave her a chance to explore the northern side of her whakapapa that she didn't know a lot about. Tahuhu Kōrero, The Sayings of Taitokero by Mirataka Faru, published by Auckland University Press in 2008. I'm reviewing it with Angela Wallace. Ange, what's the book about? Tahuhu Kōrero is a stunning book. It's a beautiful publication uh, of a collection of pipiha and whakatauki um, and stories from Taitokero, the far north. Um, the author, Mirata Kafaru, and um, the photographs are taken by Christoph Pfeiffer are absolutely beautiful. Um, it's based on research. It builds on research that was done by um, Jane McRae and Tom Parore in the mid-1980s, some of which was published in a previous book called He Pepeha He Whakatauki. And that book is quite famous in Taitokero. It's the little book of proverbs and sayings. And that research aimed to collect stories and sayings from Taitokero, Komatua. Um, so Jane uh, McRae and Tom Parore went through the manuscripts. Um, they went through any publications that had um, Pepeha or Whakatauki from the far north, from Taitokero. And they also spoke with a group of leaders, the then experts, um, Sir James Henare. Um, all of the famous Taitokero elders and leaders um, of that era. And what they basically did was they took all of these collections and they sat with the University of Auckland until somebody like Mira Takafaru could come Came back along. to them. So she's been studying these sayings for a long time, as have others at the University of Auckland. And she finally got together with Christoph. Uh, and other people. So she acknowledges a lot of people from Totokuro in the book who gave meaning um, to the proverbs and the sayings that are in here. So she went around all of the districts of the far north, from Auckland to Kaipara to wow. Whangarei to everywhere, all parts of the far north. So if we look at the Totokuro region... Are we looking from Auckland up to Cape Langa? Yeah, well, it's structured around yeah all of the um, the regions of that area. So there's Tamaki, which is Auckland. There's Pifairangi, which is the Bay of Islands. Hokianga, Murifenua, which is the far north. Kaipara and Otamatea, which is, this is new to me. This, this is new to me. It's the <laughs> mid-north, the east coast and the Whangarei area. So the book is structured around those areas with uh, beautiful photographs of people, places where wow. events took place, um, 
places of historical importance to the people from those particular hapu, their marae, there were photos of people from the marae there in the book. Um, and it basically gives meaning to the stories. And these stories are about, if you read the book, it's just going to give you new light into the Taitokoro area. You'll see its rich history, beautiful landscapes, stories about the relationships between hapu uh, and other iwi, relationships with the sea, relationships with the land, relationships with the forest and all within it. Um, and these pipiha, um continue to be used today. They're in um, Whaikōrero on the marae, they're in Waiata from Taitokero, um, and they're in beautiful publication. So, Ange, if you could give some examples of well-known Taitokero pipiha, what would they be? Uh, well, I can talk about one that I learned for my own self. Um, I'm from Totokuro, but I was brought up with my dad's people in Kaitahu. So um, when I looked at this book, I, I thought I haven't spent enough time in Totokuro. There are just such stunning beaches and forests. So I learned uh, about myself and where I'm from. Um, ko tokatoka te maunga, ko te wairua te awa, ko tauho te tangata, Te Puru o Kaipara. And this is a proverb of the Te Rorua people, which is where I'm from. It links um, Ngāti Rangi with their landscape. The plug or the Puru talks about um, it's the the knob at the top of the Tukatuka mountain, which is an extinct volcano. And just as the plug blocks a volcanic eruption, uh, this pipiha says that Tauho prevented war from the uh, from descend, descending upon people in Kaipara. So, um, you know, that's an example of how Merata has gone around the far north and talked to people who look at the whakatauki or the pipiha and they, from their own world view, from their own place mm, of mm. Taitukero, they give the story mm. about where that pipiha came from, where mm. that whakatauki came from, uh, what its relevance or meaning was um, in the ancient times and how relevant it is to us today. Because what those sayings do tend to do, um, they end up anchoring uh, a place or a person to a place. Yes. And uh, which ends up uh, contributing to your you know, feeling really strongly towards that place and your identity, neither. Yeah, well, mm. that's the beauty of uh, Merata working with elders from Taitokero and people from Taitokero who are familiar with these whakatauki, the, the, or proverbs, sorry. They give um, different interpretations, different meanings and have different uses. So, you know, this collection gives more examples into the insights of the ways that um, the people lived in the far north, you know, there's records of um, their tribal memory and their links to the land and the sea and the forests and all within it. Um, it records uh, Taitokero ancestors, their deeds. Um, and it also has... Um, it's increased my understanding of differences between pipiha and the longer versions in Whakatauki. So what's the difference? Well, what one of the um, the elder, uh, the 
eldest from Taitokerau, from Ngāti Hine, actually. Uh, Eri Mahenare did the forward in this. Who is the son of Sir James Hinari? Yes, who's also acknowledged quite a bit in this book. He said that Pepeha speak of the nature of Māori life in ancient times um, and captures the thinking from those times about all different types of matters, you know, as diverse as customs of battle, to the heavens, to, um, you know, whakatupato, there's a, a lot of uh, uh, sayings based on events which are um, cautions to us about things we should or shouldn't do at particular times. And the Pipeha gives advice, and which is for the future generations. Mm. Uh, so Pipeha are linked to events, they're linked to relationships, they're linked to things that have happened um, in history. And whakatauaki can be longer versions of those, but can also be seen as more generic. So the pipiha in this book are their tribal sayings associated with people of Taitokero. So that's, I guess, what I learned um, in reading this book. The other uh, beautiful thing about this book is the photos by Christoph Pfeiffer. Uh, the, they capture the essence of the landscape. Uh, they capture the meanings of the pipiha and the sayings and even the stories. Uh, there's also a lot of drawings um, that were done by uh, Europeans in the old days that also represented in here of old parasite, so of um, Māori participating in activities um, of tūpuna. So the photographs gives a modern look of the land today Mm. um, and next to black and white and sort of, I guess, technicolour type photos and drawings, um, it just brings the old into the new. So you could really view this as a history book. That incorporates all these different layers to it. Layers and meanings and stories. So it doesn't just give you the the pepeha or the whakatauki, it also gives you an explanation of it, Mm. of what was happening at the time, uh, who said it. There's a lot in here about Māori Marsden. Uh, There's a lot in here about uh, the coming to Taitokero, um, stories about kupe, stories about all of the chiefs of the far north, uh, stories about the parasites. It's just a rich merger of the past and the present. Now, what are all the numbers? I see as you're flicking through the book there that there are, there are numbers. So in each section, which is based on region, um, the particular whakatauki or pepeha are uh, numbered. And that's just for cross-referencing, so you could pull out a number. You know, Ngā Pipiha uh, Ngā Tipuna, it's got um, numbers in it. Right. That's really useful for when you're talking short, shorthand. It was a very old-fashioned way of um, <laughs> categorising. Yeah, so I guess that they do have meanings when you are talking about, oh, this particular whakatauki or Pipiha from this particular region, you could give it a number. Um, but yeah, I haven't really gone into. And it's not formulaic, just in terms of the format, and each page is very, very different. 
each page is stunningly different. Um, there are short, for some of the pipiha, there are very short um, explanations. Some of them speak for themselves. Some will have a photo next to it. Others have very, very long explanations. Um, from the people who recorded the sayings. So there's a lot of Māori and then English translations. Uh, there's a lot of um, stories or, or accounts from people that are talking. You know, for example, in one particular pepeha from the Hokianga, ko te Māori he mea huna ki te moana, is about the Māori, the life principle or living source, is hidden in the sea. And there's a quite a bit of talk about it, but it also includes somebody saying, according to the account of my elders, at the time when um, Nuku Tafiti, which thought that his canoe would be swamped and destroyed by the waves, he removed his sacred feather and cast it into the ocean as a tribute to the Tanifa and to the gods, and so the sea calmed. So the meaning of this one is about, I guess, acknowledging the sea and ways in which you can calm the waters. Um, so it's taken from a particular person, uh, a discussion with a with a um, elder. So they, in terms of structure, they have the pipiha or fagadoki in Te Reo Māori, then they translate it into English, and then they have an explanation. Yes. Um, there's also some really beautiful uh, quotes from past land claims in here. Because which, the Muri Whenua land claim was one of the longest running land claims ever. Yes, yeah, so the, the, source, the sources of information are just so diverse and so rich. Um, but the parts that I love the most have been uh, where the author has had a conversation with another person and ask them to interpret mm. the story. Um, Patu Hohepa um, offers a lot of interpretations of stories uh, in here. And, you know, for somebody like me who, who hasn't spent a lot of time in Taitokero, um, but I know that I'm from there, it's just a wealth of knowledge. Kia ora, Angela Wallace reviewing Tahuhu Kōrero by Mirata Kafaru and photographs by Christophe Pfeiffer. That joins the rest of our book reviews, Te Wethi Wethi, which you can find at radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika. Navigate yourself around our webpage and there's all the details for the books. The Urban Kainga exhibition ended a few weeks ago after a couple of months at the City Gallery, Wellington. But I caught it before it closed and got a tour with Māori Pacific art curator Ruben Friend. What made you decide to pull together an exhibition like this, Ruben? Um... Urban Kainga was a exhibition that um, kind of came out of what I saw as a need to provide um, an exhibition which uh, gave a group of, of role models to young Māori and Pacific men living in the city um, and looking at the issues that, like the social issues that um, kind of come with living in that environment. And so we all have heard the um, statistics about um, Māori and Pacific um, men um, in terms of um, our kind of socio-economic um, kind of standing um, and, and those kind of problems and so um, what I wanted to do was to explore some of those ideas 
specifically from a male perspective and kind of pull out some of those key issues, but in doing so also kind of providing um, role models that, that young um, Māori and Pacific Island men um, firstly can, can kind of look to and can relate to um, and also kind of aspire to in a sense. Um, and I guess the kind of the second kind of part of that is also uh, creating an exhibition which um, identifies those issues for um, wider audiences who might not be aware of some of the um, some of the issues kind of in the show. So issues such as um, being labelled and um, trying to achieve um, education coming out of family that has had no education, um, language barriers and those kinds of things. So um, people who might not be aware of those kind of struggles and those barriers, I guess, to economic kind of success can come and kind of see it from a, a Māori and Pacific perspective. So if we just talk about the labels um, issue a little bit further there. Now, there is a work here that really pops out at you. It kind of, to me, it seems to have like pop culture references that until you look at them a little bit closer, you're going, eh? Yeah, this um, work you're talking about is called It Is Itself by um, Selinga David Setonga. And what he's done is he's taken um, well-known um, brands and kind of reformatted them so they read for, uh, I guess, um, portray Pacific Island, or specifically for him, Samoan, um, urban Samoan kind of narratives. And so um, for him, he talks about his parents coming to New Zealand in the 1960s and creating... Um, while trying to create a mini Samoa within their house in, in Auckland. And so he grew up with the language at home, um, sh- you know, strictly Samoan language as a child in the house. Um, and his parents trying to instill this idea of Fa'a Samoa, of, of pride in his culture, um, knowledge of who he was and the customs of, of his island homeland, despite being, you know, hundreds and thousands of, yeah, you know, so dislocated from his ancestral homeland. And um, um, despite those kind of efforts for to instill pride, you know, cultural pride in him, when he stepped out of his uh, house um, in the morning, he got labelled something else, and he was perceived as something else. And so, what his parents saw Samoan to be wasn't the same as what people mm-hmm. looking at him perceived Samoan to be. And so he's taken the fresh up can and changed it to freshy, and underneath it says, "I'm got to be good for you." <laughs> and he's he's taken a kind of humorous approach to to looking at some serious issues, but but basically it's about being labelled, and and despite what um, his parents tried to instill in him um, when he came to New Z- when he was perceived to be someone, it was different to what he perceived for himself. Because it's that kind of stuff that can play real havoc with your identity, eh? Yeah, and especially when you think of um, him as a child in, in the 1970s growing up um, in New Zealand and um, being that um, urban drift generation, so everyone was working class um, and I guess all those um, social problems that come with being, um, I guess, you know, working class and almost stereotypes that come with that and, and getting labelled as those things. And so he's got... Um, he's pulled a couple of other things out. So um, he's taken 
um, the Ford label and, and changed it to say FOB. Mm-hmm. Um, he's taken the United Airlines logo and um, changed it to say Uninvited, stowed away and overstayed. So he's taking really well-known labels and and um, and, and yeah and and. and I just love the subtext that goes on. You think it's one thing because your eyes kind of see, oh, yeah, I recognise that label, and then you read it, and it kind of almost jolts you. Yeah, well, people laugh at it, and then um, then they have to have a stop for a second and go, oh, no, hold on. Um, That's actually quite hurtful. Mm. Um, So there's another work that he's taken from the Boys in the Hood movie, which really popular for um, especially Māori and Pacific communities, And I think it was the 80s that it yeah. came out. Um, and he's changed it to say Bungers in the Hood, um, homage to Ponsonby and Grayland, the original fob maker. Um, so, you know, you look at that one and you look at the freshy one of the I'm Got To Be Good For You. And so apart from the labels, he's also looking at um, language barriers and how um, that is definitely one kind of barrier to economic success, which is basically why... Uh, people moved to New Zealand, and, you know, during the the urban the urban drift. You know, the New Zealand government set up these policies, specifically designed to attract Māori and Pacific communities into the major centres of New Zealand to fill up these these labour shortages. And, and then, they got there, and it wasn't what they expected it to be. And well, I guess mm. there probably was a period where um, the jobs were plentiful, mm. but then you know we had um, the dawn raids in the seventies and eighties. It's like well, you know, thanks for that decade. Now we have machines that can do that job for you. Now can you can you leave? And so there's that uninvited um, artwork. That's where that, that's coming from, you know. And so it, it's funny, but initially it's funny when you look at it, but it's quite hurtful. Yeah. Um, and so I guess the other artists in the exhibition are, are, are looking at similar kind of issues, but from their own kind of perspective. So Terry Kolor Matangi Clavines, he's... Uh, his mother's Tongan, his father's Norwegian. Had a similar thing to Selinga. He, his mum moved to New Zealand in the 1970s with him and his uh, brother. I think Terry was five years old at the time. And so his works talk about... Um, they're a photograph, photographic uh, series that are uh, mostly six-by-nine um, black-and-white photographs of his family, of his home. Um, and so I guess I should say uh, in Tongan kainga, means extended family and so the, these photographs are basically his kainga and, and as you walk down the wall which is about I say about three or four metres long and you look at each of the, the photographs you're introduced to another relative, another house you see the power pylons that run through the houses the backyards of the houses in South Auckland so you're introduced to that environment and he talks about what it meant to be Tongan but in a South Auckland context, yeah. and so um, basically this is his kainga, this is what being Tongan meant for him in New Zealand, and so a lot of those same kind of struggles coming through with um, that Salinga's talking about with dislocation and, um, and trying to come up with your own um, sense of belonging to New Zealand as, as a Pacific Island person. Isn't it amazing? Like, I'm just looking at the photographs again now and just the movement that I'm getting, you know, between each piece and... I mean, how many photographs are there on the wall there, Ruben? I haven't, I haven't counted them all, but mm. there'd be about 50, I imagine, yep. um, and they all kind of emanate 
from one photograph in the middle, which is a close-up shot of his mother, mm. of his mother's kind of stern-looking eyes, and everything kind of grows out from there. So in a sense, it's kind of like she moved to New Zealand and the, the family kind of grew out from there. So she's almost like the centre point for the kainga. So that's genealogy. The name of the work is called Blood is Thicker Than Mud. And so the idea is blood being genealogy, whakapapa, um, culture, something that you can take with you no matter where you are in the world. Um, and so mud is obviously referencing the land. And so the idea is that, you know, you can take your culture with you uh, and, and it can survive no matter where you are. But I guess in a sense, um, your environment will always affect aspects of the culture and so it's about kind of reconciling that. Um, and then I guess we kind of move on from there to look at Rewiti Arapere's works. He's a, um, he identifies himself as a Māori artist, um, which means that um, tikanga um, and I guess protocol and, and te reo Māori and all those kinds of things, um, whakapapa all tied up in his artwork and he's happy with that. That's the, his reality, that's the world he lives in. And so I guess the difference between him and um, Selinga and Terry's works is that his work is, is strongly located in New Zealand. And I've put his works next to another artist named Nick McFarlane. Um, Nick McFarlane is um, actually Pākehā, um, and his works are about growing up in Porirua in the 1980s and how the gangs had a strong presence in the 1980s and how he perceived those gangs. Um, and so the two obvious kind of gangs that we have um, in, for Māori culture anyway are the Mongol mob and the Black Power. And so um, I've put those works next to Rewati's artworks as a kind of... Um, to play off each other and, and to look at the differences and the similarities in the works. And so the reason why I thought um, Rewiti's works were so strong is because they were strongly Māori, and so um, they're, they're giant paintings done on plywood, and they are done in a graffiti street art kind of style. Um, and he's... He's used a Waikato, uh, Ngāti Ngāti Raukawa carving style. And so if people know about Whakairo um, and the Waikato, we tend to have um, historically really large heads on our carvings with short arms and short legs, short bodies. Um, often the figures that are placed on top of each other are carved to look as if they are actually sitting on each other's shoulders. And so he's, he's incorporated those elements of customary carving into his, into his artwork here. But he's done it in a, in a graffiti kind of street art style. And so what he's trying to do is he's looking, about, he's looking at taking things from the past um, and, and using them and retaining them as a, as a symbol of identity and, and a, coming from a place of strength, but then also bringing them into the future and bringing it into, into urban context. So he's a young man in his early 20s and um, graffiti art is important to him. You know, it's something that he can identify with. A lot of young um, men in general, you know, worldwide, identify with graffiti art. Um, and so he's, he's, he's not afraid to, to kind of um, embrace that, you know, and, and this is his reality, you know. He is strongly Māori, but he is a young man living now, and so 
these are the two worlds that he lives in. And so I guess in a sense you can kind of look at that idea of urban Māori um, in the kind of cliché sense um, that people often talk about urban Māori being somebody who's from the city, who's kind of lost touch with their ancestral roots, who perhaps doesn't speak te reo Māori, doesn't um, have a good grasp of tikanga, um, but I guess when you look at Ewati's work, he's kind of he, you could say that he's taking that symbol mm. and reinventing it. So he is strongly Māori, and he is he does have um, a good grasp of te reo and tikanga um, and the customs of his iwi. But he's also very urban, and so he's like almost taking that that cliche in and rein, reinterpreting it as, as a positive thing. So an urban Māori in a in a positive, more kind of contemporary sense. And then if, if you look, if you take these kind of works and then you look at Nick McFarlane's um, gang patch works, what Nick McFarlane has done is take well-known gang icons um, and then place them within golden frames. And so um, instead of saying mongrel mob, it'll say savage culture. Um, there's another motorcycle gang and he's taken the motorcycle gang text and changed it to domestic violence cycles and then there's another well-known gang patch and he's got rid of the label of that one and written wealth gap division and so he's looking at um, gangs as almost a contemporary reinterpretation of of tribal groupings so I guess in one sense you could look at gangs as being almost positive in a sense that they provide a grouping for a certain sector of society to feel that they belong to that group and to um, have, I guess, a tribe that they can call their own. And I guess in that sense it does provide a sense of security for that sector of society. But um, by using the, the text savage culture, what he's saying is that they might be referencing those um, customary kind of forms of, of tribal groupings, but but he perceives it as being being savaged, and so it's taken something that was um, sacred and, and, I guess, in a sense, mongrelizing it so that it um, represents the, these kind of the criminal um, element within, um, within these kinds of gangs. And so with the other two works, Domestic Violence Cycles and Wealth Gap Division, he's kind of looking at the, the environments that, that these gangs... Well, that I guess that gangs kind of thrive in, and that they kind of breed. And then around the artworks, he's putting them in these gold frames. And so the idea is is that when people see them, the works have this aura of of power, of wealth. Mm. And I guess for a lot of um, people, mm. when you see um, gang members out in public wearing their regalia, um, quite often we are you you almost do hold them in awe because there is a sense of power that they have. Um, a sense of fear that they kind of project, um, that people kind of feel of them, and so there almost is like the sense of power when you see them walking down the street. Yeah. But actually, if you have a look closer, you can actually see that they're just um, second-hand frames, and they're actually quite beaten up. And the glass um, is smashed. And the glass is smashed. And so it's almost as if he's saying it's an illusion. Yeah. It's an illusion of power and an illusion of grandeur that's perhaps not as real as it seems. As it, perhaps there's another layer to, to that kind of reality. And so I think it's really interesting being next to Ewati's works. And so I guess you can look at a lot of people who are in gangs who are, who are using gangs as an alternative to customary tribal groupings for their own sense of security. Um, but I guess that is 
something that people who have lost connection in a sense will tend to cling to, something that they can cling to, whereas Riyavati is kind of saying, well, you know, I don't need that. I've, I've, I know who I am, and I'm strong in my, my um, tribal grouping and my identity, and, and, you know, that's enough for him. Mm. That's, that's the pride that he kind but of goes on. does it make on. a difference, the fact that it's a Pākehā commenting on it? Yeah, a lot of people have, have asked me that. Um, I, I say absolutely not. It uh, doesn't matter who's making the commentary. If it's poignant, it's poignant, you know. Um, plus, Nick McFarlane in his works, he's always um, kind of looking at um, urban environments and how um, different social groupings breed different um, kind of subcultures. And so he's done a series of, um, when he was living in London, of like the culture that living in this like major metropolitan city kind of breeds, and it was all about the rat race and struggling to survive and always being rushing to the train and rushing to work and then going to town and then, um, yeah, and so there was that kind of subculture that, that living in London kind of bred. And so these works were, were looking at him growing up and um, he grew up near Porirua and, you know, and so he saw this, you know, and just because um, he's not Māori doesn't mean that these things weren't his reality too, like he wasn't exposed to them every day too and so... Um, plus, I think the other thing is that um, when I hear that question from a lot of Māori, I almost think that perhaps that's our own prejudice that we have against ourselves, thinking that gangs are ours, something that we kind of own. Uh, you know, gangs are a global phenomenon. It doesn't matter what culture, what country you come from, there is always that element in, in every society, um, one that I know of anyway, you know. Um, and so I guess just just that the fact that there are two very strong Māori um, or two gangs that have very strong Māori um, associations in New Zealand is, um, is kind of interesting on him, him making that commentary but I still think it's a very poignant point and the other reason I put him in the show is that he is Pākehā and it, it provides a different kind of um, commentary so we've got a Māori a uh, person, a Pākehā, Tonga and Samoan, and so it's, it's a nice kind of mix. It's all strong stuff, eh? Yeah. You know, and it's um, neat seeing the variety. I mean, I'm, we're standing in front of a television screen at the moment that's looping a video that there would see Arapere did as well called Hikoi. Yeah, Hikoi went around and um, spray-painted um, images of himself walking around Palmerston North and then he's photographed each image and then laid them um, one, like put them on a TV screen one after the other kind of in a stop-start kind of animation way and it looks like he's walking through sort the Sort of streets. like a modern flipbook. Yeah, like a modern <laughs> flipbook, yeah. And, and so it's an image of himself walking through the streets and so the Māori word for walk is to hikoi and I guess we perceive hikoi these days more in terms of marching and, and aligning that with kind of protest. Um, but I guess you could also look, instead of talking about hikoi as a protest, you could talk about a walking um, walking in this land or walking in this world. It's almost mm. like this urban environment is Rewati's reality, and so he's walking. Um, and so Māori talk about tūranga waiwai, you know, a place for us to stand, uh, our homeland, and so this is... This, in a sense, the idea of hikoi is, is Rewati walking his tūranga waiwai. You know, he's Māori, but he's um, conversant in a kind of metropolitan culture. And so, 
So he's walking in a new world. Now, in terms of your process, Ruben, in selecting these works, are these merge emerging artists? Yeah, definitely. All four of them um, have... They've all had their own um, exhibitions in their own right, and they are... Um, they are doing well in their own art practice, but they are definitely still, I guess you could class them as emerging artists. Uh, and um, I mean, I wouldn't give them a show if I didn't think that their work had merit firstly, and secondly, if they hadn't already put in quite a few miles to to establish themselves. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's the Dean Gallery um, for Māori and Pacific Arts, the City Gallery is the ideal kind of venue to, to showcase artists that are kind of in this, I guess, niche kind of audience that perhaps aren't um, given opportunities to expose their works um, as much as, I guess, they, 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 they could be. So I guess overall, urban kainga, if we come back to what the title um, was about, kainga in Māori means village, um, or home or settlement. Uh, I guess in a customary sense it was um, a, a pa or, or a fortified place that people would, could um, live together in a tribal grouping. But in a contemporary sense we kind of talk about it as your home. Um, and so I was looking at the word kainga and how that relates to Pacific um, cultures as well. So in Tonga, kainga means um, extended family. So I guess you can almost look at the relationship to Māori, where um, people in a village would have essentially been extended family, and so you have that kind of same relationship um, with the Tongan language. And in Samoan, a lot of the time, uh, Māori words will have a similar um, equivalent in Samoan, so if you drop the K of kāinga, it becomes āinga, and so once again, that's extended family, um, relatives, and so... Um, what I what I wanted to do was to to look at those ideas of kainga in terms of being family, in terms of community, and artists that look at those um, ideas of of urban, urban ethnic communities and and how the urban environment affects um, Māori and Pacific communities. And so, Selinga and Terry uh, both come from the Pacific and have moved to New Zealand as children and they're all about finding, you know, locating themselves within New Zealand and finding their own identity and, and kind of exposing some of the stereotypes and, and social problems that come with that. And then Rewiti and Nick McFarlane's works are about um, uh, how Māori have adapted to the urban environment and so um, they're coming from even though they're coming from the same place, they tell two very different stories. And so Nick McFarlane's is, is um, you know, the story of, of those people who have gone towards gangs as an alternative to tribal groupings. And Ewiti's work is about being proud and, I guess, the, the mana and the self-confidence that comes from just having a good knowledge of who you are in terms of tribal identity and how that kind of empowers him to to achieve the things that he is achieving. So I thought it was, it was interesting, and they're all telling their own um, sides of the story, but in saying that they're, as individual artists on their own, their, their works are still very strong artworks. 
Kia ora, Ruben Friend. We'll be checking in with him again in the future. The Urban Kainga exhibition was in the space specifically reserved for Māori and Pacific Art, the Dean Gallery. Which at the moment now has a video installation, Tino Rangatira Tanga, by Leilani Kake, detailing the process her late father, Richard, went through getting tāmoko. Hey, and all you Māori writers out there, put the 14th of May in your diary. The Māori Literature Trust, or the Creative New Zealand, Te Puni Kōkere and Huia Publishers, has come up with a way to get you pumping out publishable works. That's right. Te Papa Tupu is a writing competition with a difference. Six writers will be selected to receive a weekly allowance and ongoing writing support for six months, all with the aim of uncovering what's out there in Māori writing land. So dust off those manuscripts, Yehoma, at our website radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. Click onto links for more information. Anaya Angela Wallace anō me te whakamarama a te whakatauki. One particular pepeha from the hokeanga, uh, ko te Māori he mea huna ki te moana, is about the Māori, the life principle or living source, is hidden in the sea. And there's a quite a bit of talk about it. But it also includes somebody saying, according to the account of my elders, at the time when um, Nuku Tafiti, which thought that his canoe would be swamped and destroyed by the waves, he removed his sacred feather and cast it into the ocean as a tribute to the Tanifa and to the gods, and so the sea calmed. So the meaning of this one is about, I guess, acknowledging the sea and ways in which you can calm the waters. Um, so it's taken from a particular person, a, a discussion with a with a um, elder. That's us again for this week, Ehuama. Next week, Justin brings highlights from an inaugural event held a few weeks back in Porirua City. And our Anzac show has some goodies lined up too. Namahiki na kai kōrero i tēnei wiki, mena kai rā wiki wiki mihini. Hoi anō iwi mā, namahiki a tātou katoa. Hoki mai hei tērā rātapu. Mauri ora tātou katoa.